Welcome back everybody to the Uncensored CMO. It's really, really good to have you on board. Now in this episode, I've got a very, very interesting conversation with Abba Newbury, who is the CMO of Habito. If you haven't heard of Habito, they are a fintech startup. Uh, They've been around for about five or six years and they are properly disrupting the mortgage market. I'll uh, leave uh, Abba to explain how they're doing it in the episode but they've done some very, very bold advertising already in their very short history. And uh, if you're based in the UK, I'm pretty certain you'll have seen them on TV or out of home. And they've taken a rather unconventional approach to media and also to creative development. There are literally tons of great, fascinating stories about how Abba and the team came up with these ideas, uh, which I know you'll enjoy. But look, this episode is a, is a bit more than just fun stories looking behind the scenes at advertising campaigns. We also jump into how Abba competed in Ironman. She's also competed at top level in swimming and some of the lessons she's learnt from going through the training process to get to an elite level of sport. She's got so much career advice for anyone out there that's thinking about a career move, particularly in the world of fintech. You won't believe some of the stories she's got to tell. So without further ado, let's jump in. This is Abba Newbury, CMO of Habito. Abba, welcome to the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really glad you've come on. And it's funny, actually, I, I, if you sort of cut me in half and, and, and see me bleed, I, I think startups and scale-ups and disruption is something I'm so passionate and excited about. And when, I, when I started the podcast, actually, it was a real mission of mine to get people like you on the show talking about your journey to, and what you've been doing. So um, I'm very excited for this one. For everybody listening, we'd love to find out how you got to where you are today. So if you could tell us your journey to here. Okay, cool. So Habito, if you don't know who we are, I guess what I would call a host buying platform so we began life as a digital mortgage broker so somewhere where you could get a mortgage from your uh, mobile sat at home completely digitally we then realized that mortgages were like even more broken than we thought so we then decided to start fixing the mortgage products themselves so we've built some mortgage products which are good for uh, buy-to-let landlords under the new corporate structure for self-employed people the first ever long-term fixed mortgage and now we've been able to allow people to borrow seven times their income within that long-term fit model, which is super exciting. And I guess like maybe the opposite to you, John, I never really thought I'd work in startups. I began life in media agencies, did some work in advertising agencies, went back to media agencies, then spent a bit of time in a big corporate um, at News UK. And then, yeah, kind of did some consultancy work with the likes of Google and YouTube and then stumbled across Habito and just the very concept of the business to try and change the most difficult purchase um, that any of us ever make mm. uh, was incredibly exciting. So despite having no interest in mortgages or financial services or anything like that, I begged a founder Dan for a job and I'm still there four years on. That's brilliant. And it must be very early in the journey because I mean, Habitat's only about, what, five years old now? So you, you were in quite early. Yeah, yeah, good knowledge. I guess we're six years live, uh, sorry, five years live, six years yeah. in. So yeah, I joined at four years. I guess we were only 25 people and, and Habito had a very accelerated Series A to Series B funding round, which was yeah. really only like something crazy, like nine months. Um, and I joined really just as the Series B money hit and my job was to, to go spend it. 
When they did the round, did they say ABBA's coming? Right, so therefore we'll double our investment. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so much to get into. Uh, just before we get into some of the fun stuff about you know how you're building the brand, because I think that's very interesting and very different to what most tech startups are, are currently doing. Tell us a little bit more about what's different about the Habito experience compared to your normal uh, mortgage uh, lender, provider, et cetera, et cetera. What makes Habito so different? And how did you get to that original insight? You talked a little bit about people's frustrations, but how did you uncover the insight that led you here? We're different because like if you've got a mortgage for most people, their mortgage broker is a, I'm going to say a guy. I mean, it is fair that it's mainly a guy, Um, not a brand, but like a person who Mm. you got introduced to or recommended to or met down the golf club or something like that. And, you know, mortgages, mortgage as a business is like that disintermediated. It's lots of small players rather than any big brands. And we set out from the beginning to do two things. One, make it far, far easier to do and to be able to do it in 15 minutes Hmm. rather than, you know, two months. And then B, to make a brand, to make it it scalable, to make it something that you're going to come back to um, time and time again. And as we've gone on that journey, like we've found more and more things to fix so I guess we never intended to be a home buying platform, but now we'll do your legal work and your conveyancing work also from your mobile. And I guess I could overclaim my involvement in the kind of early stages of the brand strategy, but really Habito was always founded out of anger and frustration. So Dan Hegarty, who is uh, the founder, used to work at Wonga. He's Well, before that, he was a rock musician and then he went to work at Wonga and, you know, he's a super intelligent guy and he just found the process of getting his first mortgage unintelligible. And I guess worse than unintelligible, there was incorrect form filling. He nearly lost his house like three times. It was a disaster. And I guess when you work in fintech, you're like, how can it be so difficult, so archaic when it's so much money um, that you're borrowing? So... Habitat was always born out of frustration. And I guess we we realised, I realised very early on, that was a super powerful jumping off platform because it's like universal. If, you're, if you talk to a friend who's buying a house or, you know, someone who's remortgaging, you know, it's like, ah, you know, lost the house, told I could borrow X, then I could borrow Y, you know. And you've also got this kind of strange part where you're, for most people, they're their mortgage broker has been recommended to them by their estate agent. So their estate agent is basically able to look at both ends of the transaction. They're able to look at how much you can borrow and they're able to talk to the seller about how much they think uh, they can sell for. And it's very rare that, you know, a shopkeeper will come and actually like look in your wallet and say, (laughs) you know that £80 Sainsbury's shop you're doing, Abba? I think we can push it to 100 Um, So we're trying to fix that as well, because also estate agents work for the seller, not for the buyer. So what we're trying to do is be, you know, on the side of the buyer. I I love the phrase used, born out of frustration, because that's a brilliant way to encapsulate you. And it comes through so clearly in your communication, actually. It's just the the buying experience and how painful it is. And we we all, well, anyone who's got a mortgage and been through the house buying process will know all the horror stories you talked about. And and it comes through so powerfully in in your communication. It's brilliant. So uh, I think that's wonderful. So obviously, you know, you joined uh, sort of four years ago and you started working with Uncommon, didn't you, in terms of agency partnership? Because they've only been around four or five years now as well. So was that fairly early on in the journey that you you, you guys got together? It was super serendipitous. So I'd worked with Nils and Lucy when they were at Grey, two of the founders at 
um, uncommon. Uh, they were the uh, retained agency for uh, news. And some of our best work had come out of, of Niels and Lucy. And I actually used to work with Lucy a long time ago, back when she was at DDB. So at my first day, Habito coincided with a campaign announcing the launch of Uncommon. So I just wandered in to their offices and said, please, give me six months, maybe give me a year, but please don't take on like anyone in the mortgage or housing space, bear with me. And at the same time, I did a, like a huge beauty parade. I spoke to lots of different agencies, didn't do a pitch, but just more had a cup of tea with people and said, what do you think? And then when I had my cup of tea with Uncommon and said, what do you think? They literally blew me mm. away. And so, yeah, I went from kind of serendipity to just like strategic perfection. And they've been our partners ever since. Yeah, they're absolute rock stars, aren't they? And, and, and you know, it's a, a real meeting of you know, meeting of minds, personalities, ambition, disruption. I mean, they're, you know, very much about doing things different, doing th- doing things with a purpose and pushing the creativity really hard, which comes through amazingly. Tell me, because I remember, I, I mean, probably three or four years ago, in fact, when I first saw some Habito out of home and then on the tube, I remember sort of walking past this poster with this incredibly bold hell and heaven thinking, what on earth is going on there? And then getting them on the tube and seeing it again and going, Wow, I haven't seen anything like this uh, in quite uh, quite a while. Tell me how you, know, you and the team at Uncommon came up with the idea and, and get that produced. Yeah, so I, I guess a lot of agencies... Well, it's a very hot topic at the moment, right? Which is like agencies want a good brief and clients got, can't give a good brief. And so I guess I don't know whether I gave Uncommon a good brief or a bad brief, but I basically gave them Habito's brand purpose, which was at the time, as written, to set people free from the hell of mortgages. And just let them go from there. And the other thing that Lucy Jameson did was she asked Dan, the founder, because obviously found, founders of startup businesses are often like much more emotionally involved with the brand than, say, a FTSE 500 CEO who just sees the kind of brand as something that's like got a value on the balance sheet. So she asked Dan, what's your favorite ad? And, and classically, like any good t- tech CEO, he went, oh, I don't like ads. He doesn't actually talk like that, but for dramatic effect my impersonation of him and then we sent him away we like the stupid answer so go away and have a think about it because like half of dan's friends also kind of work in advertising and creative industries and he came back with i mean the ad has not stood the test of time well but he came back <laughs> with black current tango as his favorite oh. ad do you remember the black current yes. tango ad? is that with the jets yeah. that, that dropped down and ray gardner's in the suit and it's like the boxing ring it's the <laughs> White Cliffs exactly. of Dover. That one. Oh, yes. Gardner and says, yeah. oh, thank you, Black Gardner Tango. Didn't yeah, like yeah. it that much. Yeah. And Ray Gardner goes nuts, right? And declares yeah. war with France. And, like, yeah. and I guess that was like really useful because it sort of said, we can really play out the kind of purpose statement of Habito in the kind of emotion that we want to like recreate or, you know, get people to empathize with in advertising. So that's really helpful not many brands play with anger but it's an interesting one to get into a memorable one to get into I think and, and actually I think many founder stories do start don't they with well I had this bad experience I, it made me so angry I wanted to fix it in fact I just had the guy from Tony's Chocolonely on my podcast last time actually and, and, and the founder story there's so inspiring about the frustration with the supply chain where chocolate's made and the amount of children that get caught up in child labor and the poor working conditions and it, it, it's literally that anger and frustration at the unfairness of it that, that drove you know the business to where they are and it's and I, I you know I can really imagine how Dan must have got frustrated in his emoji experience. I thought, well, I'm going to sort this out. You know, that's so powerful. It's a real motivating 
you know, anger can be so motivated. It can be, you know, it can be bad as well, but it's also a very motivating force, isn't it? And I guess that's one of the things that was such a delight to work with Uncommon on was Uncommon and Nails and, and his team, their devotion to the craft of the ad was kind of everything because yeah. we knew that we couldn't just be angry we needed to be angry and then take it to ludicrous. And if we didn't make people laugh and realise that we're kind of poking fun at the whole thing to try and fix it, we were just going to scare people forever. And that's why we turned to different genres. That's why we turned to skateboard art. We turned to Rick and Morty. We turned to things that like exist in uh, kind of people's frame of reference already, where you mm. you know it's angry, but it's not really. It's like but it's cartoon anger, isn't it? It's yeah. I get you. Well, that's how we got to uh, Jimbo Phillips. Yeah, I mean, Jimbo Phillips, like Santa Cruz, right? I mean, this is like, <laughs> I suddenly see all the stars aligning here. But I mean, what an amazing, what a legend. You know, you've uncovered some pretty cool legendary people in your uh, in your advertising. It, it, it struck me, actually, collaborations, of course, are quite an interesting tactic when you're a startup and scale up, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I presume you're, f you know, despite having your Series B funding, which is great, you, you know, you're still not going to have the budget that a NatWest or a Lloyd's might be throwing at their campaigns. And I think collaborations are a wonderful way of creating, well, A, the craft, but also creating the story that, that, that helps you kind of amplify what you're doing. So how did the Jimbo thing come? Yeah, I mean, the Jimbo thing was in like Uncommon's first pitch deck. And, you know, I was terrified like any client would be, which is like, you've shown me Jimbo Phillips and I'm going to get like some... That's what usually happens, boss. isn't it? And like Jimbo, he yeah, he was like... Amazing, and he did it, and he, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, mortgages are really gnarly. I mean, he used that word. And it was, like, pretty fly by the seat of your pants. Like, he's not the best communicator. He'd go, like, AWOL for, like, three three days. His files, like, the actual intricacy of his files, they're basically, like, handwritten. They're, like, impossible to, like, use in digital without loads of, like, transferring into different file formats and so it's like it's been amazing to like work with someone of his caliber but yeah you've got to be brave because also yes. you're putting your brand yes. into someone else's hands and because it's animation they are just going to go away for a week and you might hate what they come back with totally totally and i love the fact you didn't just stop there did you then you made the tv ad of course and and, and then you put a, like a thumping rock track over the top as it as if the visuals weren't you know <laughs> going to catch your attention you put the Almost, I, do you know, I've met Nils a few times and I've had him on the podcast and it, it doesn't surprise me that there's a heavy rock track on there. I can imagine him kind of pitching that one in, but it's impossible to ignore. Want to save money on your mortgage? It's either... Ow! Or Habito. Yeah, like, uh, to be honest with you, I deferred all input into the music. So Dan, founder Dan, is obviously formerly a very successful musician. Nils has got his own oeuvre. And our VP Engineering is also like a super talented musician. Oh, so that was one go. thing. They were in heaven, was, weren't they? Like, right. You guys go choose. Over we ended you. up choosing uh, uh, Noisier, who are, you know, quite a niche uh, Dutch uh, band. But like if you're into that genre, like everyone knows who they are. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about your media strategy, because it's, it's very unusual, isn't it, for a startup to commit so much to I guess TV advertising which some people would see as a traditional form of advertising so what was behind your thinking of kind of going quite boldly into broad reach 
more mainstream advertising at this stage in the life cycle? I mean, I guess, I guess a number of things. And the first go at it, I can't claim credit for. So I arrived and that was the first day of Habito's first TV campaign, which I guess it's fair to say was absolutely disastrous. It didn't move uh, metric. It was partly that the creative execution didn't work as well as it needed to. Partly the media strategy wasn't right. But that set us on the path to be relentlessly focused on kind of getting mainstream communication working well. And I guess part of the reason for being so obsessed with that is if you're in the world of mortgages, the biggest financial decision you ever make, and you're up against Lloyd's and Barclays and HSBC and Nationwide and all of those, and I think Nationwide's the most trusted brand in the in the UK, that you kind of have to play in a medium that's going to generate you trust. Mm. And, you know, whether we like it or not, people still look at TV ads and say, that's a big brand, you know, and so you go as a little brand onto a big medium with high production values and all of that kind of stuff and a very cleverly crafted media strategy by good stuff where we look much bigger than our spend because we don't buy ratings. We just buy a few TV programs. And it's worked really well for us that people do see us as a proper kind of alternative to just going down to your high street bank. Yeah. And I imagine if you can't outspend them, then what you can do is make sure you outcreative them, can't you? If you want of a better word, make sure. Yeah, out share of mind them. Yeah. Exactly. You know, out capture more attention, which I think your creative does absolutely brilliantly. And, and the good thing, of course, is, you know, we all know the standard of creativity in financial services is particularly low. So fortunately, you've got a low bar to, to jump over creatively, which is good news. And it actually makes sense. I wonder what's the average age of the person who buys a Habito products. So I guess the average age of getting a mortgage is 42 and our average age is 38. So okay. it's not it's far of, Yeah, we're not we're not mortgages, you know, for first-time buyers or mortgages for millennials or whatever like stereotype you want to put on it. We're like mortgages for people who are just frustrated about getting a mortgage. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense, yeah. And and how's the TV campaign performed for you in terms of so can you track the translation from the the building awareness, I guess at the top of the funnel use the traditional model. Do you, do you see the conversion through to search and through to hits on the website and then into sales? How's that followed through? Yeah, I mean, I guess we, we started tentatively when we started with the new Hello Habito campaign. So we started in in more kind of DRTV, I guess in part because we wanted to kind of dual run TV to drive the business and creative research. And what yes. you can't do as a small brand <laughs> is wait to do creative research. So we dual ran that. It went nuts. We had to turn off all marketing because we we created too much demand for our actual mortgage advisors in the business. And then we got our own like operational shit together and then started to go big into brand advertising because clearly it's a brand campaign. And we started by spending lots of money. And then what we've done since then is just optimize and optimize. Pick programs, pick environments. And we're still... I guess we're still small enough, but also tagged up well enough to almost directly see when our TV ad's gone to air. So, you know, we can see what happens when we're in Bake Off. We can see what happens when we're in Love Island. And we're actually like able to then look at a cost per response type because we've just said it's 10 TV programs. It's Mm. not, you know, 20,000 spots over four weeks, which has been really helpful for us because, you know, so we, I guess we're super boring in that we kind of plan our campaigns to also be able to measure them. 
Yeah, it does. And what I think I've admired is, you, although for a new brand, you've remained fairly consistent as well. And I've seen, I know from the System 1 scoring, we see the branding every time gets better as people become more familiar. You know, short-term spike particularly has gone up every single time as well. So I think that c commitment to the idea and continually tweaking, improving the execution has, has hopefully paid off too. Yeah, it's something we say to ourselves a lot is that, you know, we get bored of our campaign. Oh, yeah. We're miles away from being like... And particularly because you live and breathe it and you're so close to it. And But you're, I mean, I don't know what your TV ratings would be, but it's nowhere near any kind of saturation that, you know, you're going to get to. That's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's probably number one tip for every marketer to, you know, stop getting, you know, stop creating a new thing just because you've seen it 20,000 times, you know. But you've not just been on, you've not just been on TV, of course, or, or outdoor. You've done some fun uh, little stunts, including uh, creating a book, as of course, which did make me laugh. In fact, I think I was in interviewing Nils for this podcast and he was like grinning like a naughty schoolboy goes wait till you see what we're doing on Habito and it was something like I don't know it was like middle of February or something a couple of years ago and then you managed to rewrite the Karma Sutra for Valentine's Day didn't you which I thought was absolutely genius move how did that go down well I guess we're like like you know like mortgages are a universally over 18 product you can't get a mortgage without being over 18 right so we do have like license to be a bit daring and we did like we don't do anything without researching it so all of our like insights, and when you see the guy's soul get pulled from his body, it's because people are like, I'm being robbed blind by my mortgage. You know, when the woman gets hit in the face by a big piece of pizza being vomited out of her computer screen, it's because that's how people feel, you know, with the jargon around mortgages. And one of the things that people told us, I mean, I don't know why they told us this, but they did. But they said it was so stressful getting their mortgage, mortgage before Habito, they stopped having sex. We were like, oh, that's interesting. That's an insight. That's, that's an insight. There we, ha there we have it. Yeah. So we started this with the Evening Standard used to do a cover app competition, which is best creative execution wins a free cover app on the Evening Standard. And being a startup, we were like, well, do you know what? We'd like a cover app on the Evening Standard. So that was the brief to Uncommon. It was like, go nuts. It's going to be ju just by George Osborne and his team. Like... Let's win this. Um, and so Uncommon and the team came back with, and it was it coincided with Valentine's Day. So they came back with the Mortgage Karma Sutra. I managed to persuade, I guess, in the spirit of collaborations, the amazing Israeli-Dutch artist Noma Bar, who did uh, Margaret Atwood's The Correction. She's oh, kind of like yes. famous for yes. like the graphic design double yeah. entendre. And so he like said yes to creating the images behind our Karma Sutra. We were like... Amazing. And then we lost. We lost the competition to a picture of Boris Johnson. It was a disaster. So we were like, no, we're going to forge on. We're going to do it for Valentine's Day. We'll persuade some people to let us run it as an advert. Um, and then what we'll do is we'll send it to every journalist in the land on a tea towel. And so then, yeah, so then the bar was set pretty high. And so kind of the next year, it's like, uncommon, what... What have you got this time? And of course, the success, one of the big successes of lockdown was podcasts. And one of the most successful podcasts of lockdown was My Dad Wrote a Porno. Yes. So we wrote, we approached my, the My Dad Wrote a Porno team, Rocky Flintstone, the eponymous dad of porno fame, and said, will you write us a erotic fiction novel about getting a mortgage? He said, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. I, I, I can't believe you tied, like something as boring and sensible as mortgages to to writing a porno that's incredible but it is pretty deeply inappropriate 
yeah. as a piece of fiction. But we did get to number two on Amazon's erotic fiction, which really? we were quite excited about. We did want number one. Niels was a bit gutted, but... Oh, I bet he was. Of all the things you never thought you'd be doing in your job. That's got to oh, be right it's on my there, right? CV. It's on my CV. <laughs> I could just imagine that as an opening salvo. That's absolutely brilliant. You know, how you improve the nation's sex life, you know. So, so coming back to our, you know, coming back to Santa Cruz, of course, you've also got involved, haven't you, as a brand with Skateboarding UK as well. That, that I thought that was a fascinating collaboration. How did that all come about? Yeah, get that. again, that was one of those kind of strange serendipity where I met James Hope Gill, who's the CEO of Skateboard GB, and we got chatting. And he's like, oh, I need a sponsor uh, to do the national championships because I actually don't have enough money from kind of government funding to put it on. And if I don't put on a skateboard national championships, people won't get enough ranking points to have a chance of going to the Olympics, which, of course, that uh, went well, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. The Olympics last year. (laughs) It was just one of those things where I was just like, fuck it. It's not going to cost me loads of money. We've already kind of dipped our toe in with Jimbo. I get to be on the BBC. Yeah fine and then of course as we kind of explored the relationship then it became just so much more kind of strategic and like obvious because we're about helping people find home and that's all about you know not just the roof over your head but like the community in which you live in and skateboarding is one of those uniquely community-based sports it's in your local park it's on the streets it's you know in the middle of your city center and it has this opportunity to like drive out crime, make cities safer to live in, and then has huge advantages about forging kind of creative and entrepreneurial and music-based communities. So like I guess if you want to be like super middle class about it, if you want to look for like a gentrifying area, if you see a lot of skateboarders congregating around a place, then like go look at some houses there. And then of course you've got the kind of the time frame of skateboarding, so our average age is 38, but obviously lots of people in who get a mortgage with Habitat are older. And of course, skateboarding came to the UK in 1976. If you're in your 40s, like I am, you grew up with it. If you're in your 30s, you had then Tony Hawk and the X yep. Games. And That's it. Kind of skateboarding's very much a part of the kind of lives. And if you're you know, born in the 90s or like in your 20s now, then you've seen the rise of brands like Palace and kind of Nike go big into skateboarding. So it has like a sort of out there, gnarly kind of attitude that very much reflects who we are as a brand. But also it reflects, and I guess there's no better example this than this than Sky Brown, right? Which is the kids who are getting into skateboarding. So our, you know, the parents are getting the mortgages and the kids are getting into skateboarding. And increasingly the parents are like having a role around the skate park with their kids as well so we see it as like a family sport and maybe we're mad um, and it's still very early days but we're super excited about it you're actually right i mean the best way to get to a parent is to get to their kids isn't it you know because our our lives aren't boxed up into i'm in my 40s therefore i only do this because you know we've got kids we're doing what they're doing probably spending more time watching their media and getting involved and now it made me very happy because as a kind of kid of growing up in the 80s i was crazy into skateboarding, loved it, and did all the fundraising for the the half pipe that was built in our town, all that kind of stuff. It was great, I, uh, you know. And you're right; there's a whole culture around it. There's, you know, the fashion, the music, the community, the you know, all that kind of stuff. Keeping kids off the streets, everything. It, it, it's all, you know, it's all there. And presume, uh, what are the numbers like? Is it presumably Sky? I mean, Sky Brown has got a proper mainstream celebrity now, hasn't she? Beyond the, you know, beyond the kind of skate culture sort of thing. Are, are the numbers growing a lot? Yeah, the numbers have like trip have 
triple D. They actually, before the Olympics, started to really grow because it was one of the few sports you could do in lockdown. So yeah, it's continuing to like grow hugely. Obviously, Sky's got millions of followers and, and is inspiring a generation of youngsters. But we're also seeing, you know, even just this week, there were two really great articles, one about the role of skateboarding and people's mental health, just being like something to kind of get out. Like if you've ever been skateboarding, you have clearly, it's one of the most supportive sports if you can go and do. If you go and do like a really shit ollie at your local skate park, like everyone is going to stop and clap or help you. Like it's not like other sports. And I guess the other thing we see is a growing number of people like you and me, John, getting back into skateboarding or taking yeah. it up with their kids because it's infectious. It's it kind totally of hard is. to sit yeah. in a skate park watching your kids and then not want to go. And not have a go. Have oh. a roll around. You're right. I remember the first time I dropped into a half pipe and completely, you know, it you know failed about three times. But you're right. They gathered a crowd and they're all like chanting me on, going, get back up and go again, you know. And, and you sort of like overcome I mean, it, you know. Yeah, you would have seen it at the Olympics. It was one of the... I guess skateboarding and BMX were one of the like two sports where the competitors were really just cheering they, they were. each other on. No one yeah. really cared who won. They yeah. just cared that everyone was happy and having a good yes. time. It's the, pretty the, amazing. Those, BMX and skating were my favourite by far Olympic sports. But last summer I was hooked on it. And exactly as you say, because all the competitors were literally hugging each other and celebrating when they pulled off a trick that hadn't been done before. And it, you just, it's lovely to see that. And of course, you know, they're all on the, they all know each other on the same sort of circuit. So, but it's great. And it, it's such an entertaining sport as well. I mean, the, the, you know, the athletic achievement is incredible. And so it's cool that it's in the Olympics now, of course. It's good to get yeah, recognition also, of that. It's also a nice sport because if you're a young kid and, you know, you maybe your parents don't have lots of money or, you know, you can go and get a board for yeah. 20, 30 pounds. Yeah. Equally, if you go to a local skate park and say, I'd really like to have a go, someone will lend you a board or a, the local skate shop will lend you a board or give, gift you a board. It's one of those like truly yeah. democratic sports it's where massively. you don't need a £500 bicycle yeah. to get involved. Yeah, so true. I, I, I got given my first skateboard and I think the most ever spent maybe i remember once buying i think a power peralta for about 50 quid and saving up for about you know for like half a year or whatever of, of, of newspaper round money or something you know but that, that's that's it isn't it and, and the skate parks are free i think i mean maybe south sea is to pay but most of the skate parks i ever went to were all kind of you know you know publicly built and managed and stuff which is brilliant Talk, talking about sports well i wanted to ask you as well you just completed well not just completed but back end of last year you completed your iron man didn't you how did yeah and how much money did you raise for that yeah i didn't do it to raise money actually but having made the decision to do it i thought then i probably should raise money so i raised just under five thousand pounds for pancreatic cancer uk so my aunt died of pancreatic cancer three years ago and also my my old boss from news uk paul hayes we also lost him to pancreatic cancer as well so it seemed like the right thing to to do yeah Uh, and it's a pretty horrible disease Mm. um, and it doesn't have enough funding and it doesn't have the same profile as as other cancers so but good of you to do it i mean great cause and as you say Great to raise money for so, you know for something so important. Yeah, and the, the the whole advertising and marketing community were incredibly uh, generous, and most of the money I raised was nothing to do with me. It was actually more uh, to do with the kind of reputation of Paul Hayes and, and like what an incredible role and impact he'd made in so many people's careers. And oh. it was kind of amazing to me the how many people came out and, and were posting messages on like what an amazing boss he was. And and what was also really lovely was Marie, his wife. Um, and, and, and his two daughters were following closely on the kind of just, 
giving and it was really lovely for them because you know often when you lose somebody like three years on you know their memory feels like it's fading a little and to have all this outpouring of people across media and advertising and marketing saying what a guy was really amazing and I have to say like at one point in the Iron Man I was like god this is shit (laughs) and then I was like no no (laughs) no no I feel like that's your motivation hurry up hurry up (laughs) good 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 now you're right actually I mean I remember losing my mum 20 odd years ago, long time ago now. But it, one of the, the profound memories I had is that obviously for the first three or four weeks, you're inundated, like, you know, flowers, letters, visits, food, like the support levels just go crazy. And then it just, and then, then on your own, you're hitting the anniversaries. You're doing the things you would have done, I would have done with her and all that sort of thing. And so, and then you start to miss the memories and the, you know, so I can really see that would have, I'm sure, meant a huge amount. What a lovely thing to do. Now, were you, had you done an Ironman before? Because it, you didn't pick an easy thing to do for this, right? So how did you end up going, I'm going to go and do an Ironman? I mean, I do a lot of cycling myself. So I, I could probably cover the cycling bit for you, but I couldn't do the, the swimming bit and the running bit. So that's quite a lot to bite off. Yeah, I look, I had done an Ironman before. I'd done an Ironman seven years before, before the birth of my son. Because I was like, I just need to get this. I need to get it done. I need to get it ticked off. Yeah. And then at the afterwards, I was like, never again. Ever. And then, of course, like lockdown happened and I ended up becoming a very serious swimmer. And swimming was one of those sports that was just kind of cut off on the first lockdown. And then we had that. Do you remember that six weeks of kind of being allowed to do stuff again? And then we were locked down. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it was very short, and it? so I've yeah. kind of done six weeks of hard training to kind of get back up to some level of swimming fitness only to be locked down again. And so just before Christmas last year. No, the year before last, 20, 2020, so kind of December 2020, I was like, do you know what? I'm going to do an Ironman again. Just because I knew that like cycling and running were not going to get locked down. Um, and also I'd needed it. I'm so lazy. Um, I needed it to be hard enough to, you know, get me out of bed at six o'clock in the morning when it's still dark to train. Do you know, that's such a good insight. I'm just like you actually like that because I'll sign myself up to a hundred mile ride and, and, so people go, why are you doing 100 miles? Why not do 40 or 50? And I said, well, I can already do 40 or 50. Like that wouldn't be that. I wouldn't have to get out of bed. But exactly as you say, you set yourself something you don't think you can do. And then your only option is to train and to put the effort in. How long did it take you to train for the Ironman? What sort of amount of investment of training did it take? So I started training in December of 2020 and did the Ironman in October. So whatever yeah. that is, 11, 11 months. And, you know, it was like four hours a week up to 35 35 wow yeah so that's that's um, for long <laughs> not for not for very long admittedly yeah. um for, for like like literally like three weeks i was doing nothing else other than like work eat train but yeah it was good it's not as hard as you think i think it's more a mental battle than it is actually a physical battle yeah. and in, in many ways the training is harder than the it's harder than the day no that, that's very true I mean, I haven't, I haven't done an Ironman. I mean, the toughest rides I've done with the biggest climbs, it, 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 you're so right about the mental thing because you just get this overwhelming desire to stop or to turn the bike around and go back down the hill. And you, you, you sort of have to sort of, you have to override it. Just go, right, I'm just going to concentrate on the next corner. I'm just going to concentrate on that crest of that bit of the hill. 
and I'm not going to look up because if I look up, it will just seem impossible. You know, you just have to keep telling yourself, keep going. Yeah, and my first you... adapter tour, maybe you've done an adapter tour. I have, so yes, the, yeah. The hard stage of the Tour de France. All I kept telling myself was it was going to be worse to sit in the bus for the 200 kilometre journey home than it was to go on for another hour to get to the top of the Tourmalet. That's all I could think about. Yeah, yeah. Be in the bus. No, you don't want to be in the broom wagon, do you? No. It's something like 25% of people that enter that end up in the not finishing, I think. It's a very high number, isn't it? Yeah. So, well, kudos for that as well. That's very impressive. And um, I know you did a blog, didn't you, afterwards about business lessons that you learned through the experience of Ironman. So what, what kind of what similarities are there in terms of, you know, how you've been successful in business? Yeah, I mean, there are lots of comparisons. Like, you know, parts of business are like super easy. The first, you know, like as I described, the first few months at Habito, you know, we're like growing so fast and we have to turn on the off the marketing. You know, that's like the easy stages of triathlon. And, 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 and then everyone, like whether you're like, a, you know, a pro athlete or, you know, a rank amateur like me goes through like some hard stages. And then you like, tur- like you, I think you like learn where you're going to turn. And like I instantly turned to my like fellow competitors to, <laughs> to chat, to talk to, to encourage. And, and none of, of that is how it is in a startup because it's inevitably hard. You know, it can be 20 hour days. It can be like growth that you're required to deliver that you've got no idea how to do it. And, you know, certainly at Habitat, like that's made us really like tight as a team. And I guess it went both ways. Like some of the lessons from business you take into sport and some of the lessons in sport you take into into business. And, you know, that that sort of one step forward um, approach, not overthinking things, I think is incredibly important. Because I, th- I think in marketing, we can often strategize too much um, and sometimes you just got to get on and do yeah see how it goes and no one thinks they can finish an Ironman really you know certainly in the you know my marathon took me five hours three hours in I was like this is a long way but you know you find solutions the same way you know when you're told you need to grow 100% in a startup you know people say what's your playbook for that and you're like well no. we don't know we're gonna try some stuff make some bets see how it goes yeah yeah, you're right about the persistence as well, actually, because I know in endurance cycling, it's just it, a lot of it is about pure persistence and sticking to the course, isn't it? And I think it's a bit like that with, you know, in, in any startup situation I've been, I've ended up realizing that actually one of the most competitive advantages is just sticking at it, you know, because it, it doesn't feel like it's working, but you're doing the right things. But then eventually it just starts working. And when stuff works, it's like doing more of it and so, and, and so on. So it, it's sometimes less about clever plans and more about sticking at what you know is working and eventually it will come through. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, working in a startup, it's not like working in like a big like Unilever or a Diageo, you know, where you're like on a Tour de France team and you can just chuck your bike to the side of the road and take one off the roof of the car that's travelling behind you. <laughs> that bike was shit. I'm going to try another one. <laughs> no, you're, you're on your own. Well, that's another good lesson, actually. I know I've, I, that, that struck, I suppose the closest I've come to what you're doing is I set up a little business unit back in Britvic, which is managing innovation as a separate entity. And I remember feeling this thing of, if I don't do it, no one else will. So you don't, it's not like you've got a team around you that can go, oh, you know, Sophie's got that covered or, or, or I'll get Matt to do that. This doesn't happen unless I do it. So it's like you suddenly realize that actually it, it, it is, you know, as much energy as you have is as much result that's going to happen. So it's about, you know, you getting on it and doing it and making it happen, taking ownership for it. it becomes very simple. You can't blame anyone else. If it doesn't happen, it's because you didn't make it happen, which is quite a different feeling. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the great luxuries of a startup is focus. You can't 
not focus which sounds crazy yeah. right but like if you're in a much bigger marketing team there are like a hundred different projects yeah. going on whereas in a startup you know if there's more than five things going on you're probably doing too many things yeah it's true isn't it and in a big company as well you can always go you can always blame oh well you know my bit was okay but it's because that department didn't do their thing and, and so on. and the bigger it gets and the more complicated it gets the less you disavow any sort of responsibility for the outcome and then that makes you lazy doesn't it or, or, or it makes you complacent makes you kind of come up with excuses rather than if it's in a you know in like a situation you've been in it you have to make it happen there's no choice really the other thing you said earlier which i thought it felt familiar to me as you were talking is talking to other riders as you're out there and encouraging each other the thing i found in the couple of parts of my career where I've been doing the more entrepreneurial things like this in small teams is how lonely it feels. And it's like how I feel like I'm the only person doing what I do and no one else understands. And it's actually when it, when I've actually spent more time outside of my role and my business, building networks and talking to people and getting advice and mentors and those sorts of things. And I personally, I found that really important actually just to keep my motivation going. I don't know if you found that Sort of, it's different when you're in a big marketing team, isn't it? And you're all in it together and you kind of you know, understand each other, what you're doing. And then suddenly you're the marketing person and you need to know all the answers all of a sudden, you know. Yeah, I mean, like fintech in London, tech in London is an incredibly like thriving and open minded community. So I'm in like a WhatsApp group of like 150 marketeers across across technology businesses like That's everything cool. from like Huel to kind of like us and you know farm drop and people like that and you know like everyone just chats about everything so if you've got a question like anyone know anything about CRM or you know got any good analytics solutions it's such an open and gen community everyone wants mm. everyone to succeed whereas you know in big corporate life you know if someone from the kind of daily mail when I was at the Sun, had asked me like a question about anything, it would have been like a murder. Like, yeah. I'm not telling you anything. Yeah. Whereas it's like tech feels completely different, which is like yeah. very exciting. And as you say, makes it stops it from being lonely. That's really cool. Actually, in fact, um, I know when when I've been in big corporate jobs, it, I felt like everyone. It's not. It's not like everyone's against you, but you kind of feel no one really wants you to succeed because it, it's you know it's kind of the corporate Game of Thrones type thing. And then when I've been in the, you know, either freelancing or startup is everyone's so generous. Like, you know, people will give of their time. Venture capital people will give you advice and people that have started their own businesses are very happy to give you a hand. And the generosity of spirit and even within the same sector where you go, hang on a minute, aren't we actually competitors here? Because <laughs> I'm in drinks, you're in drinks or in your case, fintech, you know, um, and actually, no, it's like we're better together and we'll collaborate. And I, I, I love that. I just you kind of think that's how it should be done rather than the kind of corporate game of uh, snakes and ladders. So maybe it's just my experience, but it's quite a different uh, feeling, isn't it? Yeah, and I think yeah, I think we actually see in the agency community more and more, I guess, because of the nature of working, like more and more like support groups are kind of setting up where planners can talk to each other and kind of technology people can talk and like more sharing of insight and resource, right? Because it's not like we all have huge competitive advantages over each other. You know, they're applied in a different way to different customers in different technologies. So I don't know why we don't share more. Yeah, no, 100%. So maybe a good place to kind of round, round up would be, what advice would you give to anyone who's kind of listening that wants to get into the sort of tech startup sector that you're in and do, you know, do some of the kind of things you've been up to if they're sort of listening and inspired by the story? Yeah, good question, because my entry into this was um, serendipitous. So I guess I got some good advice when I left news, which I had a 
career advisor, which sounds very lofty. But really what we ended up doing was she wrote... We wrote, ended up writing down a list of companies that I really wanted to work at. I mean, it was very lofty and, you know, it was inevitably Tesla and, like, blah, blah, blah. But what I was able to do is, like, from that go, like, I want to work at a fast-paced, entrepreneurial, but, like, reasonably well-funded business because I don't want to be... I don't want to be the marketeer who's literally running the PPC account. That's not my skill set. So... I would advise people to do that. Think about the kind of companies and the brands that they like around that and then follow those companies on LinkedIn. I mean, the beauty of the startup scene in in London right now is it's like incredibly well-funded. Businesses are growing hugely quickly and marketing is one of the first things that any tech business invests in as soon as, you know, really get to series A, but like series A and beyond. So just build your community. And then once you're in, like be brave. Like this is the, I always say to my team, and, and certainly it's true for me, this is a once in a career opportunity. Get to build a brand from scratch. I have any legacy, like any like old brand triangles or, you know, whatever. You know, we're doing this to build the business that we want to work in for the future. And it's a great, it's a great privilege. And, you know, we say to each other every day, we're here to do our very best work because no one's going to say no to you. I have it so mm. nothing's going to be too brave. And if, and if it is too brave and we do make a mistake, then we move on and we learn for it you know like come and talk to me you can find me on twitter as peckham 79 you can find me on linkedin as abonibri love to help you make contacts it's a wonderful opportunity for anyone oh it's lovely to hear that and 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 you're so right of course is that the the community is is really powerful the network is there i remember actually you reminded me of when i'd spent 13 years of my career at britvic and I wanted to get into private equity and potentially buy a company myself and get some. And private equity is notoriously private, as you know, names in the phrase. And I thought they don't just advertise, you know, for, for kind of jobs there. And um, I went to a potential career coach like you, actually. I, I ended up not uh, hiring her in this situation because she actually gave me the answer in the initial meeting. I remember she said something to me. She said, John, I bet in your contact list, in your phone right now is somebody that knows somebody that will get you a job in private equity. And I'm like, oh, come on, Claire. You like, I, The reason I'm here is I don't know, right? Anyway, she told me her price, which sort of almost fell off my chair. I, I, I was walking out, the, walking out the nice, shiny building and I got to see in my list and I went, oh, Chris, right? And what's even more embarrassing, Chris was actually working in my team, but I'd <laughs> forgotten in a previous life He'd bought and sold a business with private equity backing. And I, I said, Chris, I want to get into private equity. I just remembered you did that, didn't you? And he's like, yeah, of course I did. I said, who should I talk to? He said, I'm texting you three people to talk to right now. The first one, the very first person he sent on his list, four weeks. I'd done a deal. I was just mental. I'm just like, you know, sometimes you just, you know, anyway. But the power of networks and just reaching out to people. And as you say, particularly in this community, I think the generosity and support and community is really there. And actually with social media, like you say, with LinkedIn, we're so connected now as well. You know, there's almost no one you can't just politely knock on the virtual door and uh, ask for a coffee. And it's, it's usually our embarrassment or fear of rejection that's the thing that's holding us back rather than, you know. And it's what makes successful entrepreneurs. Yes, they're clever and, you know, but, you know, they are ruthless about, like, yeah. not working and yeah. asking for money and being kind of fearless. And there's a lot to learn from that. It's almost the... It could even be the number one thing for you to do, actually, is to drop that fear of rejection completely and just be 
bold and I mean, it's something I often say to people is just ask somebody for, for three people in their contact list that could be useful and because the other thing you don't know actually the other thing I found is when, when I in the periods I've had to network because I've been out of a job or I've been looking for something it's not the people I think that are going to be super useful that end up being super useful you can't really predict it and you, someone that's like a friend of a friend or you don't know them that well will suddenly turn out to have an amazing contact that you never knew and uh, yeah so you can't always predict how these you know serendipity as you talked about before of course, you increase serendipity the more you reach out and the more people you involve, <laughs> don't you? Strategic serendipity. Strategic serendipity. There you go. That's exactly right. Oh, it's been wonderful chatting. Thank you so much, Abba. And if people want to follow you, I think you've already said uh, Twitter and, and LinkedIn. So you're available on LinkedIn and also follow via Twitter. So please do that. And of course, if you're in the market remortgaging your house, and you want to borrow seven times your salary because that gets you the house of your dreams, you know exactly where to go. Habito.com. Come and talk to us. We'll get you a mortgage, however much you need to borrow. And to be fair, your website is so easy. I I went on earlier just to put my salary in and my deposit in and boom, there it is. There's the the amount to be borrowed, which is amazing. Uh, It takes about 10 minutes to get to speak to one of our experts. We do need a little bit of information from you. But they're online till 10 o'clock every evening. So do just come along. Come online and and see how much you can borrow. There, you've got it. You've heard it here first. Get on there. Thank you, Abba. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that uh, very interesting and entertaining conversation with Abba. Um, Just to let you know, actually, that next up on Uncensored CMO, I have none other than Byron Sharp, uh, who wrote, as many of you will know, the book How Brands Grow, possibly... I think the most uh, significant book on marketing that's been written, certainly in the past decade. It really, really is um, an essential book if you want to understand how marketing really works and the science behind uh, marketing as well. Um, If you'd like to get in touch, you can do. Please contact me. I'm on Twitter at UncensorCMO. You can also follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, You can find me at John Evans. And if you'd like to leave me a review, I would really, really appreciate it. Please do head on over to Apple Podcasts and uh, drop me a rating and also leave me some feedback. Uh, I would really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to joining you next time.